Hi everyone, this is John Meadows, and this time around I'm running the show. On a recent episode when we were covering cameras that were shelf queens, I talked about my stereo realist and how it wasn't quite working. And as a result of that episode, I heard from Howard M. Sandler, a listener of ours from Ottawa, who, as it turns out, is an expert on all things stereo cameras. So I thought, why not have him on the show to do a deep dive? So this time around, it's film photography in stereo. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival. Coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. So, Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Howard, my first question is: you know, even among film shooters, I think stereo photography is a bit of a, a niche right now. How did you get into stereo photography? Oh, yeah. So it definitely, if film is a niche, uh, stereo is, uh, is a niche of a niche. Um, uh, although there are, uh, to be fair, there's quite a lot of people doing stereo photography with digital cameras. It's not, there, there's really, it's, it's kind of orthogonal to film. You can do it with either digital or film cameras. Um, uh, so the way I got into it, like uh, a lot of people of a certain age, is I, you may remember the GAF Viewmasters, the little plastic thing, you'd put a disc in it and the disc would have, I don't remember, maybe 12 pairs of, of images. And uh, I remember being fascinated with those. Uh, uh, my family used to take a lot of trips in the car to the United States in the summer. And uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, whenever you went to a colorful tourist attraction like, uh, you know, the Parrot Jungle in Florida or Cypress Gardens, you'd stop in the gift shop and you could buy these little square packs of uh, Viewmaster discs on beautiful, rich colored, uh, I assume the prints were done on Kodachrome mm -hmm. slide film or maybe Ektachrome beautiful professional photographs of the attraction and it would come with a souvenir booklet and you know you would collect these things later on as i understand it uh, disney bought the viewmaster company and uh, at some point in the 80s they got out of photography and only did uh, discs with uh, animation of you know disney characters and scenes which is a loss because the photography uh, was excellent but anyways, I always remembered the uh, the Viewmasters. And then I'm not quite sure how I was tempted to try it myself. It might have been when uh, my son did a science fair project on stereo vision. And using a digital camera, we did some uh, stereo photos using the sort of complementary color method, which you know I can talk about later. But somehow I tried it with digital. It was kind of an interesting pastime. I put it aside. And then about two years ago, while well, you know, I was really heavily into film cameras and shooting film, and an opportunity came up uh, to buy a 35 millimeter stereo camera on my local Kijiji ads, and I bought it. And uh, I got hooked from there, and I, I've since gone through a few different film stereo cameras. So that, that's kind of my story. And we'll get to the specifics of the, the cameras in a second. Uh, one question, like I, was, I was reading one of the articles that you sent me about 
how composition is different for uh, for stereo images compared to regular, you know, two-dimensional photography. So I want to ask, when you're shooting stereo, how do you compose? Yeah, so the, there, there are some differences. And um, uh, a lot of the stereo photography sites will talk about things that in regular photography you consider distractions, like branches in the foreground, for example. Uh, stereo photographers, we love that kind of stuff because it gives even more depth to the image to have discrete objects at different depths into the picture. So branches in the foreground, it's great. Uh, generally speaking, putting the main subject front and center at the middle distance works really well in stereo, whereas it would be kind of boring in uh, normal photography. And the other thing is the aspect ratios tend to be different. So for example, with the format that I shoot on 35 millimeter film, which is called uh, realist format, the frame is almost a perfect square. It's 23 by 23.5 roughly millimeters. So square images naturally lend themselves to make good stereo photos uh, without much cropping. And also vertical images work well because of sort of the way the human eye works and the fact that you can space the images appropriately uh, horizontally. Whereas if you have a really, let's say a 16 by nine widescreen format image, you put two of those side by side and your eye has to do a lot of work to kind of see the left and the right sides of the frame in stereo. So uh, square and vertical images are a little bit more amenable to being done in stereo. Okay, and now uh, you did mention the uh, the realist. I guess you're talking about the the stereo realist, and it, that seems I think have the reputation as one of the preeminent stereo cameras. Yes. So the full disclosure, you and I got onto this topic because I was trying to sell you my old uh, <laughs> realist camera, and you heard that uh, mine flaw, weren't working. Flaws, flaws and all. Uh, by <laughs> the way, I did eventually sell it a couple of weeks after that. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, so the. the the stereo is it's an interesting thing because it's it's uh, it's been in fashion in waves and one of the things that I, I didn't know when I started my son studied filmmaking uh, at Concordia and also minored in history and uh, he told me that there there were stereo photographs of the Civil War so it, it existed it was known uh, very soon after the invention of photography, there was already stereo photography. And uh, so there was a wave of popularity, particularly in the Victorian years at the, the, the turn of the century and uh, all, the, all the upper class Victorian households would have a stereoscope at home and they would buy these stereo cards to look at. And then it kind of died off. And then Kodachrome came along. And so now color slide photography was kind of in reach of uh, the, you know, the average or, or maybe a little bit above average amateur photographer. And this uh, very interesting uh, engineer, I may be mispronouncing his name, Seton Roshwhite, or maybe it's Seton Roshwhite, R-O-C-H-W-I-T-E, was fascinated by uh, stereo and he was building his own cameras for his own use. And he realized that Kodachrome was a, a really nice medium for making stereo that could be viewed by just looking at the two slides 
uh, with a light source behind them using, using a, an appropriate sort of binocular looking viewer. And so he invented this camera, uh, which became the stereo realist for his own use. And then he, he basically talked the David White company in Milwaukee into manufacturing it. And then they took him on and he went on to design a few other stereo cameras after that, by the way. But the stereo realist really took off and, and it kind of launched another wave in the late 40s, early 50s of uh, stereo photography being popular for the average hobbyist. And then it kind of died off again. And there was a brief revival in the digital era. You might remember um, stereo televisions, kind of a flash in the pan around 2010. Yeah. And Fuji came out with a couple of models of a digital stereo camera, one of which I have actually. And they're not bad, but, you know, I still love to shoot film cameras the most. So uh, the Stereo Realist is a very, very unique camera design. It's got a rangefinder. The rangefinder is on the bottom of the camera. And that's one reason I sold it is that's exactly where my little finger rests when I'm holding the camera. So <laughs> I'm constantly frustrated. Oh, I got to move my fingers to focus. And in the user manual, there's a description of how you're supposed to basically press it to your forehead. And that's the proper way to hold the camera while you're, while you're lining up your shot. But aside from the quirks, it, it works well. It's got two lenses and the basic principle of all stereo photography, you have two parallel lenses. The spacing is usually about the same spacing as the human eye. There are exceptions that I can go into later called hyper stereo for doing landscapes. But uh, most stereo cameras, the spacing is very close to about 70 millimeters, which is just like the average human eye. And uh, one of the genius innovations of this fellow Rosh White was the, the frame format that he came up with which is called the realist format. And, and it's used not only by his camera, but quite a lot of the American made stereo cameras use the same. So it, it's semi-standardized. And it is this square, roughly 23 by 23 millimeter frame. And the clever innovation is he can fit two frames in between the two frames that are being exposed. So you've got this sequence when you develop your film, you've got image one, the right hand image, then you've got image two, the left hand, image three, the, the left hand, and image two, the uh, sorry, image one, the left hand, and so on. And so they're all interleaved. And there's almost no spacing between the frames. There's a very, very tiny sliver of space. So it's very efficient. Uh, even though you're taking two images, you get 29 pairs on what would normally be a roll of 36 exposure, 35 millimeter film. So you're not wasting very much film at all. I think that, that that is genius. The downside, at least for me, I've had two realists and I've had issues with film transport on both yeah, of them. Yeah, so I've heard that. There's uh, one of the sites that I sent you in, in the links is uh, there's a guy who's, he goes by the moniker Dr. T, uh, George uh, Themelis. And uh, this guy collects and restores uh, a lot of stereo cameras, but especially realists. And uh, he's got a website that, that has a lot of information about repair. The good thing is they're, they're not that hard to repair. There's a lot of space inside. And uh, the film transport is, however, very sensitive to 
loading the film exactly according to instructions. There's a little tab that holds the film down against the sprockets mm -hmm. and you have to make sure to guide the film under the tab. The user manual is not very clear about that. And the instructions by this guy, Dr. T are actually better than the user manual. And when, when I followed his instructions to the letter, uh, I found that the film fed through the camera nicely, although it does sound terrible. It, it sounds grindy. It sounds like it's shredding the film, but in fact, it's working fine. <laughs> What I found with mine, uh, it just at least like the second one I got, it just it like it would seize up. Like uh, I, I, thought... I haven't, so I haven't. Well, I only own the one copy. Uh, mine didn't seize up. Uh, it did get very hard to turn. First of all, there's no there's no uh, lever. It's a it's a thumb uh, it's a thumb operated knob with a knurling that will uh, delight in cutting into your flesh. And uh, in cold weather, it can be really hard to turn. So I did find that I was using mine in the winter and, and it was a little painful. It's also very sensitive. There's a screw right in the middle of that winding knob. And the whole thing is a little sensitive to how tightly that screw is, um, is turned. So I'll have to have another look at my, at my second one just to see maybe I'm doing something wrong or maybe it just needs some kind of adjustment because I couldn't even get through one roll. I was disappointed because I wanted to get back into stereo. So, But I guess the other possibility is now you've uh, recently moved on to another camera. Yeah, well, I've now had three actually. So, so the way I, I, I started is, is this uh, re relatively obscure camera also made in Milwaukee called the Kindar, K-I-N-D-A-R, came up and I purchased that. And it, it feels kind of tinny. It's very thin aluminum and all that, but it actually did work. It has the rangefinder. If I, I've now sold it, I think the rangefinder was also on the bottom, but it did at least have a superimposed rangefinder viewfinder, which the Stereo Realist doesn't have that. It has a separate viewfinder window and a separate rangefinder window. But the Kindar basically worked. It only worked at one shutter speed, but I, I got around that. Uh, and it didn't have flash sync, which uh, was one reason I, I upgraded to the Stereo Realist. I used the Kindar for a while, and then I got the Realist. This fellow, Dr. T, has instructions on his site for how to grind the hot shoe. The, the hot shoe was made for a proprietary flash. It doesn't quite fit a modern flash as is. But if you grind away and file it down according to his instructions, you can fit a flash onto it. And uh, I was uh, happy to discover that despite what it said in the manual, it, it actually has X-Sync. Oh, so I could use a modern flash at any shutter speed. And a, a lot of the fun in stereo is to do action shots, people throwing water and stuff in the air and capturing that in stereo. Because that's the one thing you can't do when you just take uh, two shots with one camera. And uh, that's fine for a still life, but it doesn't capture action. And so what camera are you using now? So now, so... Uh, the stereo realist worked, but I, I always admired this other American camera called the Revere Stereo 33, uh, just because it looked really cool. It's, it's a beautiful camera. So uh, one of them came up on the bay and I bought it last month and I, I've only put the first roll through it, but it's working fine. So it's functionally, it's, it, it doesn't do anything you can't do with a realist. It just, I find it a little more ergonomic and, and, uh, 
intuitive. It's got the shutter release on the right-hand side, the realist, the shutter releases with your left hand. It's got the rangefinder on the top plate, not on the bottom. Uh, however, there is, uh, for close-ups, that means there's going to be a viewfinder parallax because uh, one of the nice things on the realist is the viewfinder is dead set in between the two taking lenses, so there's no parallax for close-ups. But that hasn't been a problem for me so far. And it's just got this beautiful brushed aluminum finish. By the way, both the Revere and the Stereo Realist focus internally. You, you, there's no, you won't see anything moving when you turn the focus knobs. What they do is they, they're actually moving the film plane on the inside of the camera, which is kind of cool. Uh, but uh, sometimes people might advertise that they think that they're selling a broken camera. In fact, it might be focusing just fine. So that's, that's one thing to look out for when you're buying. If only I were that lucky. Yeah. <laughs> and how, how do you find the, the lens quality on the Revere compared to the Realist? Uh, it's very similar. So almost all of these stereo cameras, other than the very high-end ones, they use uh, three-element triplet lenses. The normal sort of focal length for stereo in that square format is a 35 millimeter lens because it's not as wide as a 36 by 24 millimeter frame. It gives you kind of a normal uh, angle of view on a stereo. And so you've got pretty decent depth of field by, by the time you're at F8, almost everything's gonna be in focus. So one of the tips I would have is I, I wouldn't be too concerned about the rangefinder being super accurate. In fact, to tell you the truth, when I was using the Realist, I, I tended to zone focus. I'd be at F8, F11 most of the time. Stereo with uh, the lenses spaced about as far as the human eye, it works really well with objects that are four to six to eight feet sort of distance, the, mm -hmm. the main subject. It's not as great for distant landscapes where there's nothing in the foreground. That makes sense. Uh, so, and it doesn't work for macro for various reasons. It's, it's too much spacing for macro. So if your main subject that needs to be in focus is four to six feet, you can estimate that. And if you're, if you're at F11, it's all gonna be in focus. So um, uh, the rangefinder is really kind of optional. There were stereo cameras without rangefinders, notably the Kodak stereo camera didn't have a rangefinder. And I, I wouldn't see that as a serious limitation. If you find a good condition Kodak, I would buy it. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing we should also talk about, you know, when you're ever doing film photography is two parts of the equation, the camera and the film. So uh, what films do you like to use? The golden age of stereo in the late 40s, early 50s was all done with uh, Kodachrome. I think the early Kodachrome was ISO 10 or yeah. 25. I can't remember. Yeah, I started at 10. So, you know, bright sunlight, uh, th these folks would be taking a 50th of a second, a hundredth of a second at F8, F11. They'd get nice stereo slides in the sun. And uh, the average photographer who wasn't all that adept with light meters and so on was taking his chances in the shade or indoors. But, but outdoors, just about anyone could get a decent stereo photo on slide film. Now, I don't shoot slide film simply because I'm not set up to develop slide film at home. I should say not yet, because now with COVID, I mean, uh, you, you got to kind of process at home. Yeah. 
but I gave up slide film in all of my film photography a couple of years ago. The, the one lab that would do a slide run in Ottawa cut back from daily to once a week to whenever they had enough for a run. And then finally, they just announced they weren't doing it anymore. And I'm always too eager to see my film. Like, I'm not going to mail it off and wait three weeks for it to come back. So I just gave up slide film. Uh, I've shot black and white negative film, but stereo, all in all, I'd say stereo lends itself to color. It, it's the, the depth adds more realism and color adds realism. So it kind of goes well with color images. So I tend to shoot negative film. Now, as a practical matter, because I do take pictures in bright sunlight and most of these old cameras don't have a shutter speed any faster than one two hundredth or mm -hmm. one three hundredth of a second, and that's if the shutter works well. I don't tend to use 400 speed film. So my go-to film is Portra 160. I love that film. You can do anything with that film. You, you can be off by several stops and still fix it up later. The only problem is it, it's a little expensive. Yeah. Have you ever tried uh, Ektar 100? Uh, I, I have used Ektar. Uh, Ektar is a beautiful film. Uh, it's got even better grain than um, Portra. The only reason I don't shoot more of it is I, I tend to be a people photographer person, and it's not great on um, at least Caucasian skin tones. It's, mm -hmm. It tends to put a lot of red in people's faces. And it's a little finicky uh, trying to fix the color. You know, when I, I, I scan mm -hmm. and uh, I tend to be able to correct and get realistic looking colors out of Portra more easily than with Ektar. I have shot it, but I haven't actually shot it with stereo, but I have shot it. And so you mentioned you scanned and that sort of helps me segue into the next question I had for you is basically the workflow. You know, we've talked about the camera, we've talked about the film. And so what technology or what device do you use to, to look at your images? Yes. So there's two issues. One is how to process the images and then how to look at the images. There are uh, people that love to look at stereo slide film. So they, they will shoot slide film, get it developed somehow. And the way to view stereo slides, there's two methods. The method, they used to be able to project them. If you had a special screen that preserved polarization, you could use a dual projector that projected the left and the right with two polarizations and you could wear glasses. Oh, cool. But people haven't really been doing that since the 50s. That is how movies, 3D movies are done though. With the real 3D glasses are, are polarization-based technology. But you need a special screen and most and a special slide projector, which, you know, hasn't been made for 60, 70 years. So hardly anybody does that. And they're probably impossible to find. Well, there are some clubs. So so okay. the thing with stereo, it's a niche of a niche, mm -hmm. but the, the people who do it are very tight. And so the one of the clubs that I've I've at least gotten a lot of good information off their website is the Golden Gate Stereoscopic Society in San Francisco. So I take it from what I've seen on their site that they have meetings and actually project slides, although I suspect it's digital now. But anyway, so, that, so that's a long segue into stereo slide projection. The most common thing people used to do back in the day, and some people still do it today, is they take their slide film that they've gotten back, they cut out the left and the right images with scissors, 
and what they call they call the separate images left and right the chips okay of a, of a stereo image and they mount the chips in a dual slide mount you can imagine viewmaster the chips are very small and they they go on opposite sides of the disc and the mounting has to be very precise to a fraction of a millimeter uh, because of something called that'll maybe go into later called the stereo window but but if it's off by even a a millimeter, it tends to make the eyes fatigued. So you, you got to get the alignment, especially the vertical alignment, very precise. That sounds pretty fiddly. It found, it, it's fiddly, and that, that's why I don't do it. And then you can view these stereo slide pairs with a, a little plastic thing. You hold it up to the light, and, and you see gorgeous full-color stereo. Uh, but I don't do that. <laughs> so I scan my negatives, and I, and I get uh, the left and the right images as layers. And I put the layers in Photoshop and I, uh, and I lay, let's say, the left on top of the right. And then I change the opacity so I can see through and I'm seeing a little bit of both images. And then comes this, this thing that I, I call the stereo window. And what you do is you slide one image over the other and you make some feature aligned. Now, if you make the most distant object, let's say you've got a, a person, let's say you've got a, a, an archway, a doorway, beyond that you've got a person, and beyond that you've got trees in the distance. If you make the trees in the distance align then, uh, and crop it, and then you crop that, those two layers, then when you look at the stereo image, uh, what, it's going to look like the trees are, are at the same distance to your eye as hmm. the edges of the frame, the window, and everything else is gonna come forward from that. So if you remember going to 3D movies, you know, the, the dinosaur sticking his jaws right out of the screen at you. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's the, the kind of effect. So it can be kind of dramatic, but it's a little tiring for the eye. And the stereo connoisseurs, I, would, I get a sense that they look on that as kind of vulgar and not very artistic. <laughs> So that, that can be done sparingly. It, it tends to work if you've got something like, a, you know, a bird sticking its uh, beak out of the camera, but you don't want things at the edge of the frame to be sticking forward from the frame because that's what's called a window violation. It, it's jarring to the eye because you know physically where the frame is, and then suddenly this thing that has all the optical uh, properties of being in front of the frame is touching the frame that it's jarring. And so they call that a window violation. So that's, that's if you align the, the most distant object. If you align the subject, uh, the person that you see through the doorway, the person will appear to be at the depth of the window frame and the archway will be projected in front to your eye coming out at you. And then the other choice, which is the most normal choice, is you find the closest object in the picture, like the archway in this example, you make that a line between left and right. And then when you view it in stereo, it's gonna look like the window is at the level of that object and everything in the scene is gonna be behind the window. So it's like you're looking out of a window at a 3D world. Oh, wow. And that, that's generally the least fatiguing to the human eye for mm -hmm. most people. And uh, it's considered the most uh, understated and artistic way of doing most subjects. But again, these are not hard and fast rules. When um, so anyway, so you once you align 
the images the way that you want, you crop, then you can take the two chips that you've cropped and you can decide how you're gonna present them. So there's a lot of ways that people can view stereo images. I mentioned the slides. Uh, when it comes to uh, viewing on a screen or viewing prints, you have a few choices. There's one technique that you don't even need any viewer or anything special. It's called uh, animated GIFs, or uh, if you, if you want to see how to do it, people can Google the term uh, wiggle gram or wiggle GIF. And all it is is you, you make a little animated uh, GIF file, a GIF file, and uh, you toggle back and forth between the left and the right in a continuous loop. The normal rate that is suggested is about five times a second. And it gives you, it's not true 3D, but it gives you a sense of the depth because the image is mm -hmm. wiggling back and forth between the left eye and the right eye image. And you can I've find those groups on Flickr that have these kind of things. I've stopped doing it. And I'm not sure if this is a real thing, but it, it strikes me that doing anything that's optically flickering at five times a second worries me that it might provoke an epileptic person to have a seizure. So I've stopped doing it partly for that reason. I, I don't know if that is a real thing, but it concerns me. So I, I don't do that anymore. Actually, in my in my day job, I work uh, you know with for web development, and uh, these days, like in Ontario. Uh, you know, it's if you're a big enough company, you have a website, your websites have to be compliant for, for this, I think, called AODA. So you have to take into account uh, uh, people with various disabilities. And uh, one of the things we have to be very careful of is uh, is flickering and flashing in video content because it can right, provoke right. an epileptic seizure. So I think, you know, you've raised a good point. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to go onto a forum expecting to see that, but I, I was just, I would just worry about somebody stumbling upon it mm -hmm. uh, who might be susceptible. The other thing is, it's not quite as effective as looking at something in real three D. So I, I don't, I don't make those anymore. Uh, so the re the remaining techniques are uh, what's what are called anaglyphs, which is it works very well for black and white images, not so well for color. You simply tint uh, one of the chips uh, a color and you tint the other chip the complementary color. The most common is uh, uh, cyan and uh, what's the opposite of cyan? Red. <laughs> and then you get glasses. Uh, you know, you might remember as a kid, the little cardboard glasses. Yeah, mm -hmm. with They were very cheap and you, you can buy them in bulk. You probably get 10, 10 for a couple of bucks uh, by mail. Um, that's what my son used for his science fair project. Uh, we actually don't have any more of those around the house. And if I, if I wanted to have some, I'd have to buy them by mail. Uh, it works well for black and white. And, uh, so it's as simple as tinting the two and, uh, overlaying them again. And when you view it, you'll see it in 3d. The other two techniques are cross-eyed viewing. So you put the right hand images on the left and the left hand image on the right with very, very little or no gap in between them. And um, many people can train themselves to go cross-eyed and see it in stereo. I tried um, that a couple of times. It was not enjoyable. It's not the thing. Is, yes, like most people could do it, but they don't, you know, uh, they don't find it enjoyable for a long period of time. And, you know, you worry about it causing a headache. And so we're left with the final method, which is what I use, which is a stereo card. 
and it could be a virtual stereo card. I, I, my images are online and, and I can view them with a viewer held up to the screen. And in fact, uh, well, I'll get to the viewers in a minute, but the principle is, is sometimes it's called uh, wall-eyed viewing or parallel viewing. The left is on the left, the right is on the right. The problem for the eye is you're looking at something maybe a foot away, but your eyes have to go completely parallel as if they're looking off at infinity. And so I have learned uh, with some practice to be able to do this without any viewer. Uh, I think the stereo people will call this free viewing. Um, but, but nobody in my family or my circle of friends has been able to do it. Most people will not be able to view your images that way. So all you have to do is get a viewer. And a, a viewer is it's really basically a couple of uh, magnifying glasses held in place. You can get viewers from a whole bunch of sources that can be ordered. Uh, there are a few bucks for cheap ones. I ended up biting the bullet and getting a pretty good one. And the coolness factor was part of what sold me on it. So you remember the film Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. came out a year or two ago. Uh, so Brian May, who is the guitarist for Queen, happens to be quite scientifically trained. He's got a, a PhD in astrophysics, I believe. And he's been into stereo photography since he was a kid. And uh, he's of some means now, and he started a company, which, uh, among other things, sells a really nice viewer that he, uh, he actually has a patent on it. It's called the Owl Viewer. Mm -hmm. And it, it has certain nice features. It's all made of plastic, and it folds up flat. So if you buy a book from him, the Owl Viewer comes in a pocket at the back of the book. It's got a magnetic back plate when you fold it into position. You can put a smartphone uh, that has some metal on the back of the smartphone and just click it into place and look at your images uh, on, a, on a smartphone. It's just about the right size to view stereo images on a smartphone. That's what I wanted to try because I knew that uh, for your phones, you can get things like Google Cardboard all the way up to Oculus Prime. You know, you can get to use those devices as like, as for stereo for 3d content it'd be perfect exactly so and, and he he calls his i think the full name is the owl uh, vr viewer in fact so it you can use it for vr he goes to some uh detail on i think it's on his site about he's chosen the focal length and the sizing so that the experience is more relaxing for the eyes, but somewhat less immersive than some of the other VR viewers that put you closer to the virtual action. But anyways, I find it's a really nice viewer and uh, all of my friends and relatives are able to see stereo in it. So w without really forcing them themselves. I'll have to look for that. So, so uh, I think it was, uh, you know, it's mail order from England. It, it ended up being maybe about $40, but, uh, you know, it was one, it was well worth it, I thought. That's not bad at all. So uh, what I do is uh, I can look at my images uh, on the screen that way. I've also taken to printing them on uh, four by six paper on just on my inkjet printer at home. And I, I make the two chips a little bit less than the full four by six, and I fill it in with a gray uh, background beyond that. And that fits the viewer perfectly. And so it's just like looking in a Victorian stereoscope, except it's made out of plastic, not wood. And, uh, you know, you can, you can take a stack of images and just 
put one in front of the viewer at a time and look at them. That sounds very cool. I'm definitely looking to look into that. So one thing I was going to ask you, like we've talked about the various cameras that are available, but uh, at least for some kind of stereo uh, photographs, you don't need a dedicated stereo camera, correct? Yes, so that's a good point. Uh, when I first tried stereo for my son's uh, science fair project, uh, we just used a digital camera. We did a still life kind of test image, which is a tabletop collection of objects, put the camera on a tripod, took a picture, moved the camera carefully about 70 millimeters to one side, keeping it parallel, uh, pointing the same way it was, taking another image. You can also do this without a tripod if you're out and uh, you can do this even with a smartphone. The stereo people call this the cha-cha method. You imagine <laughs> shifting your weight. You're not even really moving your feet. You just kind of shift your weight from your right foot to your left foot. That tends to move the camera about the spacing of your eyes and you take two shots. It just doesn't, it doesn't work for action is the problem because you're yeah. not taking the two shots simultaneously. Uh, other people, and I've come across people in the park occasionally doing this, they're uh, doing stereo photography with two cameras and uh, either uh, a split cable release or a radio trigger or, uh, or an infrared release so that they're taking the two pictures at the same instant. And then they, they put the two cameras together in some kind of a rig to keep them spaced appropriately. It tends to work very well, by the way, for film photographers. There's a beautiful little compact 35 called the Raleigh 35. Yeah. Uh, I have the cheap version called the Raleigh B35 that has only a three-element lens. But if you, if you were to get two of those cameras, that because they're very small, when you orient them vertically, you can put them very close together. And uh, that makes a lovely stereo rig. And I've heard of people doing that. Unfortunately, the the full blown Raleigh thirty five is a rather expensive camera these yeah. days. And and actually, although it hasn't been released at the time of recording tonight, uh, by the time this episode is out, our previous episode for CCR will be on that exact topic, the Raleigh thirty five. Ah, so stay tuned. I'm looking forward to that. So yeah. I, I I came upon the Raleigh B thirty five simply because it. It was part of essentially a junk box I bought and I lucked out and the thing worked almost perfectly. And I've, this is an aside, but I took that camera on a month long trip to Israel last October and the, the images were mainly taken in sunlight. So I could stop, even though it's a three element lens, I could stop it down to F11 or F16 and the images were just fabulous. So one last question. If someone wants to start stereo photography, what should they look for and what should they look out for? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, uh, actually, there are not too many pitfalls because, uh, as I was explaining before, uh, the sweet spot for taking a lot of stereo film photos is that you want to stop the lens down, you know, to F11 if possible. And as a result, you know, almost any old lens will perform pretty well at F11. You're also not going to be printing these images huge. They're meant to be viewed with a viewer and uh, they're not going to be printed more than three or four inches high. So lens quality is not too important. By the way, I said stop down to F11. 
Uh, a lot of the three element lenses tend to vignette very noticeably at f16 and f22. So there is there is a little bit of a reason not to use f16. Yeah, and diffraction often comes into it that at those f-stops anyway. Yes, it could be, but uh, but the overriding thing is both the stereo mm -hmm. realist and the Revere uh, are known to vignette starting from about f16. Mm -hmm. Good to <laughs> but, know. But uh, I also uh, I wouldn't worry. It's nice to have a rangefinder, but it's it's not critical. As I explained, you can do pretty well by zone focusing. So the problem you mentioned, film transport with the realists is an issue. And uh, let me see. If you do plan to, to take flash pictures, it is important that either the previous owner has, mod they, they have these weird proprietary hot shoes that are not really the same as modern hot shoes. It is important to uh, see if the previous owner has done the appropriate filing and bending that you can fit a flash onto the hot shoe because a lot of them don't have sync ports. You've got to use the hot shoe to get your connectivity for a flash. And beyond that, really, so again, film transport, uh, it's possible the film will be transported, but there could be frame overlap because the realist format really has a razor thin spacing, even when it works perfectly. Uh, so you, you might find your, I, I wouldn't put my subject too close to the edge of the frame because mm -hmm. you, you may find that you, You've got to trim off a little bit near the edge. Other than that, though, it's it's as close to a foolproof photography system as there is, really. Well, Howard, this has been fascinating, and I definitely feel uh, motivated to go out and try it myself. Uh, even if, if I don't buy a new stereo camera or just new-to-me stereo camera right away, what I'm thinking I'd like to do is take out my Hasselblad with a, with a square format and a tripod and and start off that way. Uh, you definitely, you can do stereo with any film camera uh, by taking two pictures, uh, spacing the camera apart. Mm -hmm. There is a, actually one of the links that I sent you is specifically about medium format stereo. I've never done it. Uh, well, I should, sorry, I have done it with my uh, Bronica, but I haven't looked at slides. They always talk about medium format in terms of how gorgeous and realistic uh, medium format projected slides look but I've never had the opportunity to see that. Uh, but you definitely can do it with a, with a Hasselblad or, or any format camera. Yes, I sense I'm about to jump down the rabbit hole. <laughs> well, the cost of entry is not very high, but you do have to spend some, you know, this business about adjusting the, the stereo window in, in uh, post-processing experiment with that. And that, that once you sort of get that and, and, uh, start printing the images or uh, showing them on the screen at the right size for viewing, you're kind of off to the races and it becomes very formulaic, the processing after that. Mm -hmm. And you can concentrate on the subjects and the creativity. Mm -hmm. So Howard, thanks very much for joining us tonight. It's been my pleasure. Uh, my greatest fear of being interviewed was I, I'm not really good at coming up with the double entendres that you guys uh, are known for on the show. Maybe something about, uh, you know, the movie Piranha in three double D, but <laughs> I, I can't really think of anything uh, provocative. Now, one thing I will mention, Howard was nice enough to put together a great list of URLs of resources on stereo photography. So I'd highly recommend you reading if you have any interest at all in trying this out. 
Well, that about wraps it up for this time around. On behalf of all of us here at the CCR, we hope you stay safe, stay healthy, and keep finding a way to enjoy film photography. Thanks for listening and goodbye.